white and purple. Green, white, and purple. These are vestments or paraments if they're on the tables. And they stand for different seasons in the liturgical year of the church. And we are approaching the very end of the liturgical year. That will be next Sunday. And then the Sunday following, immediately, there's a new beginning. Right now, we're in the last Sunday of what's called ordinary time, and that's marked by the color of green. But it's really not ordinary, because in Christian understanding, it's framed between the coming of Christ that we will celebrate during Advent, purple, and the all-encompassing reign of Christ our King, which we will celebrate next Sunday, Christ the King Sunday. And to be between the coming of Christ in grace and the reign of Christ in power and authority makes extraordinary out of every ordinary day. This morning we're going to be reading a scripture, two texts of scripture actually from Matthew's gospel. The one marks a beginning point in Jesus' ministry. The other marks what you could consider an ending point, but then just like the liturgical calendar that rolls over and starts again immediately, the ending point also becomes a new beginning. So let me invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel and to read it together with me. The first passage comes from Mark, or excuse me, from Matthew chapter 4. Let us read together. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then our second text comes from the very end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, 16 through 20, passage that's often known as the Great Commission. Let us read it together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God bless the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Please be seated. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. With those words, Jesus began his mission. He was speaking from a backwater district to the north of the country of Israel at the time, called Galilee of the Gentiles because it was on the margin of Israel, right up against those hated and mistrusted Gentile countries to the north, a place vulnerable to invasion under the shadow, literally, of death, 
a place where light desperately needed to shine. But that's where Jesus started, on the margin. And he was the answer to that prophecy that light would shine. You know the story. Following his journey to the cross over the next three years, then his resurrection from the grave, he directed his disciples then after the resurrection to return to Galilee, to that same starting point from which his own mission had begun. And there he commissioned them to carry out that mission to the entire world. They were to baptize people, helping them to move from old identities into a new community. They were to teach people to obey everything that he had commanded, to move from old ways of living into a new kind of life, and lest there be any question as to what it was that Jesus was teaching about that new way of life, that new community, the Gospel of Luke tells us that even after the resurrection, for a period of some 40 days, Jesus appeared periodically, the risen Lord, to his disciples, and he continued to instruct them, to teach them, kind of a post-resurrection graduate seminar, you might say. And what was the content that he had to teach? Luke says he continued to teach them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There's an old chorus that was very popular in the 1990s. It goes this way. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross. Our debts to pay. You know this one? From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the skies. Lord, we lift your name on high. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the 1970s and 80s, to my recollection, there was a program that many churches around the country adopted as a way of reaching out to people with the gospel. It was called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you are familiar with it, probably. And it went this way. There was a crucial question that was to be presented to people as a way of getting at whether they really believed or not. And the question was this. If you were to die tonight... And God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And of course, many people would say, well, I hope I've tried, I've tried to live a good life. I hope I've done well. And, and of course, the answer that was being looked for is, put your trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. It was a very effective program in many respects. We used it in a church I served. We saw people come to faith in Christ through it. But... I would submit to you that this particular way of presenting the gospel no longer has much traction in our society. Not much. Charles Taylor, who's the noted Canadian moral philosopher, has written extensively on what it means to live in this secular age that we're a part of. And one of his main points is that most people today live really without a worry about life after death and questions of that kind. And in fact, they find, remarkably, a sense of meaning in the ways that they construct their lives without even having what you could call a transcendent point of reference, a kind of a north star, some marker on the far horizon to keep them oriented. Now, to Christian believers, this seems almost unthinkable that people could live a meaningful life without, you know, having some sense of where their anchor is, what the north star is, and what's going to happen after death. But we live in a kind of culture now where most people are not really all that concerned about what's going to happen after they die. 
And this raises very important questions for us as a church. It is no longer a matter of whether we have something to say about dying, life after death. Our culture now wants to know whether we have anything to say about living, about life before death, about here and now. Well, the Gospel of Mark agrees with Matthew that the very heart of Jesus' message is summed up in this phrase, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Mark simply adds to it that it is good news. He says, believe it, for it is good news the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is very good news indeed, very good news. If we understand what this phrase, kingdom of heaven, means in the Gospels. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they mean the same thing. They do not mean, repent, the end is near, you're about to die. As though kingdom of heaven refers to the place you go after you die. Instead, the essential meaning of this message that Jesus came is repent and rejoice. You are about to live. You're about to live. That's what the kingdom of heaven is about. It is not the place you go after you die. Instead, it is a way of describing the fact that God has come from heaven in Jesus Christ to reign here and now. He says it's at hand because it has begun. He says it's at hand because it's here now, today. He says it's at hand because it's like saying there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new government. Would any of you like to have a new government? Yeah, see, that's the idea. When Jesus Christ comes and says, rejoice, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here, he is declaring, in fact, the reign of God, not after we die, but now before we die, in this life. And we are privileged to be invited to live under that reign, that authority. It is good news indeed. Matthew's entire gospel, in fact, sets us out beautifully for us in a systematic way, the kind of systematic exposition you'd expect of somebody who'd been a tax collector and a record keeper, a scribe. In Matthew 5 through 7, after Jesus announces the beginning of his ministry, in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew sets out the character of the life in the kingdom under God's reign. You can read those chapters. And then he goes on in Matthew 8 and 9 following to set out the character of power and authority in the kingdom. It's a kind of power demonstrated through Jesus' miracles and his acts of mercy and compassion, a power that, that helps people, that heals people, that gives hope to people. And those who heard his preaching and saw his demonstrations of the authority of the kingdom got it. The crowds flocked to him, so much so that help was needed. And so at the very end of chapter 9, we find Jesus saying to pray, to pray that there would be more workers for the harvest, because the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were not very many. He asked for that prayer at the end of chapter 9, and boom, beginning of chapter 10, the prayer is answered, as we find him commissioning his 12 disciples and giving them authority to go and expand on the mission that he has begun. So his mission begins to expand and more people are reached. And then in, interestingly, in the very next chapter, Matthew 11, John the Baptist, who preceded Jesus, who foretold his coming, but now 
has been arrested and placed in jail, he sends messengers to Jesus with this question. Are you the one? Is this the real thing? Is it the real deal? Is the kingdom really beginning? Well, why the question from John? The reason is because John and the other Jewish people of his day, they had expectations. They had expectations as to what the kingdom of heaven would look like and what would happen when the Messiah arrived and the kingdom of God was inaugurated. And so he sends the messengers, are you the one? Is this the real deal? And Jesus answers, yes. Yes, it's the real deal. But it looks like this instead instead of what you expect it to look like. Then in Matthew 12, the next chapter, we discover that there's rising resistance to Jesus' ministry and his declaration. It comes from the scribes, the Pharisees, because they also had expectations as to what was going to happen, as to what it would be like when the kingdom of God came, and Jesus violated their vision, violated it so severely. In fact, Matthew tells us they plotted to destroy him. We come nearly to the middle of the gospel, chapter 13, and we discover that Jesus begins to speak in parables, riddles almost, puzzles. His disciples can't figure out why he's doing this. Why are you speaking in parables? And he does it because he's trying, on the one hand, to give opportunity to the crowds of people to think about it, to puzzle over it, and perhaps to grasp the meaning of what he's saying. He wants the crowds to come and to hear at the same time, he's wanting to give to his critics, the people that were plotting to destroy him, not something they can pin on him and use against him, but he wants to give them ambiguity. Plausible deniability, it has sometimes been called. Give them puzzles, give them riddles, let them figure out what it means. And then there's a third group, his disciples. We could call them his special crew. He wants to give them the secrets of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom, to reveal to them what it's all about and how it's going to work. Because those disciples also had expectations which needed to be set straight. They believed that God's reign on earth would come, the kingdom would come, that God would send an anointed leader, in fact, to bring it about, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. What do you think? Can a new leader make a difference? Of course. We all know that. 90,000 people at the Coliseum last night or USC fans think that a new leader can make a difference. <laughs> but when a new leader comes, do you think the difference will be positive or negative? Well, that depends, doesn't it? That depends on the leader. You see, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, its character, its nature, is defined by the character of the king. The messianic age that would usher in the kingdom is defined by the manners of the Messiah. And this is where they had a problem. Everything the world had taught them about leadership, about kings, about rulers, was off target. It was contrary 
to the very nature of God's kingdom, contrary to the manners of the Messiah. What Jesus was bringing and demonstrating them was not leadership as they knew it, because he came with humility, not hubris. It was not power as they understood it, because it was power used for service, not for selfishness. It was not privilege as they had come to understand it, because the kingdom, the reign of God in Christ, was for the meek, not for the mighty. And it did not bring change the way they wanted it. It was organic, we could say, not overnight. It was gradual, not grandiose. It was transformational, not triumphalist. And so Jesus had to talk in parables to deconstruct their expectations and reconstruct them for a proper understanding of what the reign of God, what the kingdom of heaven on earth actually was about and would look like. The kingdom of heaven, he said, it's like, it's like, um, well, it's like seed that's sown widely on different kinds of soil. There will be different responses to it. It's, in fact, like a mustard seed, so tiny as to seem completely insignificant, and yet, and yet with time, grows into the largest tree in the garden, a refuge for the birds of the air. It's like yeast, virtually invisible, but gradually changing the nature of the world. And it's going to be messy, this coming kingdom. The weeds are going to grow up right with the wheat, and you won't even be able to tell them apart. There will be fish of all kinds scooped into a net, he said, some of them good, some of them not good. There'll be a sorting out at the end. But then he says to his disciples, it's like a treasure. It's like a treasure. It's like a priceless pearl. And to live in this kingdom under the reign of God now and forever, it is worth everything that you've got. Everything. These parables of the kingdom that Jesus sold for those crowds and his critics and his crew, they're for us too. Because we also have expectations about God's reign in our lives, about God's plan for our church, about our mission to the world. But Jesus would say to us, if I am going to reign in your life and in your church and in this city, you'll have to let me lead. You'll have to learn to do things my way, he would say. And this, if we are honest, this is a problem for us because his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We can live under God's gracious government today, every day, but to let the king of heaven be king in our lives, we have to repent. We have to change our mind. We have to change our ways. We have to learn to do life differently. You know, from a historical perspective, as the church grew up out of the, uh, the Middle East and moved into Europe, the church in the West, in Europe in particular, it came out of nowhere, out of nothing in a sense, but it then became the dominant institution of Europe for over a thousand years. And during that long period, Christianity became associated with the trappings of, of power, and privilege. Now, the American story, how the gospel came to 
these shores and how the church has grown in America is very different in many ways from Europe, but some, some of the same tendencies persisted. We have a tendency in our culture to misunderstand our mission, to misconceive our message, as I've mentioned, to think that it's mostly about what happens after death rather than understanding that it's mostly about what happens before death, the kind of life we're called to live. And we have a tendency to misuse the means that are at our disposal for the mission of Christ. This is a lesson that was learned, has been learned, and is still being learned the hard way in the international missionary movement, that movement of trying to share the gospel of Christ across cultural boundaries with people that are not like we are, people of other cultures. So missionaries went out with a message of new life and salvation, but oftentimes their methods were out of sync with the ways of Jesus. With all good intentions, they made efforts to serve the poor, the downtrodden, the hopeless. But sometimes they employed methods and, and manners that, in fact, diminished the capacity of the poor rather than enlarging it, that stripped them of their dignity rather than telling them and helping them to understand they were made in the image of God, that tried to remake them, in fact, after our image to be like us rather than to become more like Christ. But out of those hard lessons, the missionaries who learned them discovered that the kingdom brings life to people when it comes dressed in humility. It brings power to people when it is shared in meekness. It brings hope when we are willing to walk with others in the midst of their suffering. You know, this is an interesting period of life, isn't it, at Bel Air Presbyterian Church, waiting to see who it is that God calls to be the next pastor, the new leader. It's an excellent time for us to refocus our attention on the kingdom, to repent of the world's ways that, that tend to throw us off course, to renew our commitment to the ways of Jesus. For it is as we submit to the all-encompassing authority of Christ, that we will receive the vision that we need and we will discover, rediscover the mission to which he calls us. A mission that speaks to the restless hearts and the deep soul hunger that is in our culture. A mission that calls people not simply to life after death, but to life before death, that teaches them the ways of the king, a mission that looks out from this magnificent place on the hill to the aching needs of the world around and offers real help, true healing, endless hope to people. And it begins, as Jesus has told us, by repentance, by repentance. Living the life of the kingdom of heaven, life before death, life after death, means letting the king of heaven rule in our lives today. So let me ask you some questions. Where are you in your own life still insisting on your own way and not the way of Jesus? And how's that working for you, by the way? Where are you saying to the Lord, you're not giving me what I want when I want it and the way I want you to give it to me? 
How about letting the king do it his way? Where are you making plans on your own and begging God to bless them? How about asking God what plans he might have to bless you and to make you a blessing to others? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are coming to the end of ordinary time. We are coming to the place that we lift up our king and exalt him and celebrate him, the one who has authority over all. We are coming to a season in Advent to make a new beginning in repentance. And so in these weeks ahead, celebrate Christ the King this week and next Sunday by declaring your allegiance new, letting him reign in every aspect of your life. Celebrate Advent in the weeks ahead by the, the coming of Christ into the world by opening yourself to the new beginnings that God certainly has for you when you let him come to your life as the king. This is no ordinary time. Repent. Believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen.